0: Welcome to Account-Based Marketing. This podcast is designed as a collection of conversations with sales and marketing leaders sharing thoughts and practical tips for growing your most valuable customers. Hosted by me, Alicia Linden, founder and CEO at Momentum, the B2B growth consultancy. Welcome to this episode of Account Based Marketing. This podcast is all about driving revenue growth. So, who better to have with us than Tiffany Bover, Global Growth Evangelist at Salesforce? Tiffany, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really great to, to have you with us. And I know we're going to have a rich conversation about where sales is heading and uh, your, some of your predictions for the future. But it'd be great if you could kick us off with a bit about who you are and uh, how you became so passionate about growth.
1: Sure. So, you know, just because we're here talking about Sales today, I, I often say that I'm a recovering seller because I no longer <laughs> carry a, I no longer carry a quota, but I bleed sales blood. I sort of grew up selling technology sales 25, almost 30 years ago, uh, and then kind of worked my way up the organizations through startups as well as Fortune 500 companies, and then I spent a decade at Gartner uh, advising some of the largest technology companies on sales transformation. The impact of digital to the way brands market and engage with customers, and then Salesforce asked me to come and join the amazing company that is Salesforce and do the same thing I was doing at Gartner, but do it for our customers and clients and for the market. So I've been watching and participating in sales now for for a good couple of decades. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. And what keeps
0: you engaged? What excites you about selling? Having been through, you know, started in, in, in the trenches in the in the field, and then um, progressing through to to where you are today. I
1: I think for me, I I never felt like I sold technology. You know, I always sold technology, obviously. You know, I worked for hardware manufacturers and software and cloud providers and systems integrators, et cetera. But I always felt that I didn't sell tech, I sold change. Mm-hmm. And that kept me always engaged because what needed to change was always changing. <laughs> so it kind of kept me on my toes, right? I I had to become a student of my profession of. Okay. What are my clients struggling with? What are the opportunities? What industry are they in? What do I need to know in order to add value? You know, each time I showed up and sat in front of them. And so I think it's always kept me curious and it really allowed me to participate in the successes of my customers vicariously, right? It's not about me hitting my sales numbers. It's about them hitting theirs. Right, them hitting their growth goals. So I think that's what's always kept me engaged and interested.
0: I mean, for for, for me, absolutely, selling is uh, it's a, a value you're creating value, aren't you, for for customers, for prospects? It's where can you help them, as opposed to running a transaction. Tiffany you've also um written and published a uh, best-selling book called Growth IQ. Can you just talk me through your know, top 2 or 3 highlights of of the book what's the, what's the narrative?
1: Well, that's sort of an interesting story uh you know after as you mentioned right being in the trenches and being a practitioner for 15 years on the sales side, but along the way I picked up marketing and then I picked up customer service or customer success. And then I advised, I had this unique perspective between the practitioner and the academic, right? And so I I found over the decade being at Gartner that when I was advising customers, I often heard this, we're seeing sales slow and in some cases stall. It's sort of the term I used, right? Sort of this growth stall. And so what do you think we should do in quarter? And, you know, first of all, that's a crazy question because it's hard (laughs) to course correct in quarter, but let's, let's stay with that, right? You know, that what can I do in quarter? And they would say these three levers to pull one, hire more salespeople, which, you know, okay, you know, you put a body in a seat or on a phone, it's going to take you a period of time to get them ramped up to first sales. So I didn't always think that that would provide results in quarter. So that was the first. The second was spend more marketing dollars. If I could put more in the top of the funnel, it'll help the sellers I already have get more leads and then with those leads, potentially close more business. But within that is, well, are they good leads or are they just lots of leads? <laughs> so there was that issue. And then the third lever they would you know, attempt to pull in quarter is cut costs. And and that kind of usually ended up being the one, right? Because that could really give you in quarter profitability improvements, but but that's just short-lived. So, you know, client after client, I was like, there has to be more than these three ways. And so I I really dug into, well, what is working and what's not working across the landscape. And I came up with 10 paths to growth, and that was really the foundation uh, for growth IQ. But what was most interesting about it was the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. It was the combination of growth paths that made companies more successful, but without the right sequence, like in the order in which they did it, it would provide less than optimal results. So that kind of in a nutshell was the architect, right? Look back and say, what has been successful? And by the way, these 10 growth paths are nothing new. If you've been doing this for a year, you're going to look at this and go, yeah, there's nothing new here. And it wasn't the point to launch something new. The point was to modernize growth strategies that have been out there for, in some cases, Mm -hmm. over a hundred years, you know? But we now had social mobile cloud, big data, and so how do you you know leverage those things to improve performance from a growth perspective
0: fascinating and d- did you in the in the in the book or in your own um, research uh, and focusing more on the academic side if you look at innovation there's a innovation curve or, or various stages d- have you mapped growth to key key stages that you see organizations go through
1: well if you think about the Gartner hype cycle mm-hmm. if you're familiar with it you know it's sort of you know you go up and there's there's a tech trigger or something happens in the market. It usually happens in a lab or a, an educational institution where some technology is developed. And then it sort of goes screaming up what they call the hype cycle, where everyone is really excited about it. And then you get to the top of that and you come down the other side, which is called the trough of disillusionment. It's yes. like, well, this is not anything I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and, and then you get into, you get a little bit of a bump and you go into the long tail. And so if you, I, I actually map that against what kind of sales, go-to-market strategy you would apply at each stages of that hype cycle. Because at the early part of a hype cycle, it's very hard to have a lot of sellers out there trying to sell something that people don't A, understand, B, they don't know they need, and C, it's not tried and true yet, right? It's still too, quote unquote, new, innovative, disruptive that people are like, wait a minute, I don't know where this is going to sort of fall out. And then, you know, sort of when you hire your first salesperson, that has a lot to do with, well, are the founders selling? Are they selling to the CIO? Once again, I'm talking about technology, but you could say this about really any any industry. But when you come down that trough of disillusionment, that's almost where you start to scale. When do you create your first channel program and recruit your first indirect partner, right, to sell on your behalf? Those decisions of timing, that's where I really worked with startups, right? Because if they make the wrong decision on timing, they could blow through the limited cash that they have without sales coming in. So, you know, that is a very different strategy than if you are in a mature market selling a known product where you have any form of market share. That hype cycle feels and looks different. Even if you introduce something new and you have thousands of clients and hundreds of sales reps... It's very different than you're a five person company. You have this disruptive technology and you're trying to go to market with it. So I think it's the right question, Alicia. You know, really understanding the context of where you're starting from has huge implications to what strategy you choose when it comes to the way you go to market and sell.
0: I hope you're enjoying this podcast so far. Account-based marketing is brought to you by Momentum, the global growth consultancy. We'd love to hear your thoughts and keep the conversation going. So for more information, please visit wearmomentum.com or check out additional episodes. And Tiffany, speaking of you know, paths to growth and, and what those journeys look like, I know you wrote a, an article that I read with great inter- interest about adding more products isn't always the best way to, to, to grow. What is the best way to grow in your experience, particularly for enterprise grade offerings? So we're not talking B2C here, but we're talking you know higher end B2B. So great question. And I'll tell you, I'll
1: just give you a little peek into the inside of my journey as an analyst. I would have answered that question immediately. And, you know, I'm so tempted always <laughs> to just answer. That question immediately. And I learned, you know, kind of year four of my 10-year journey, right? All the way to research fellow, was I kind of did a little bit of a disservice. What I should have said was, and really it was the opening of the book, uh, Growth IQ, is what's the context? Mm-hmm. What are your existing products? Who are your existing customers? Where are you winning? Where are you losing? What does your channel partner or indirect strategy look like? What does your distribution and support strategy look like? like? Get the answers to all of those questions so you can uncover where you're starting from, right? Because my answer may be appropriate for someone in a different context. And so I'll give an example. You asked about innovation a few minutes ago. Blue Ocean Strategy, fantastic book, right? It's about going after where people are not. But if you walk into your environment and say, we are going to go over here, we're going to innovate, we're going to create these new products, and your culture is not an innovative culture, it will fail right out of Mm -hmm. the gate, right? Because people are like, okay, well, hold on a second. I don't even know how to be agile and iterate and have scrum teams and do all these things. And by the way, you don't reward me to fail. Yeah. You reward me to succeed. So I think that you have to understand what... Kind of culture you have, an environment you have, and what your people are willing to absorb, and how much of that they're willing to absorb. But if I put that aside from a strategy standpoint, and I just tactically answer your question, one of the paths in the in the book was customer based penetration. I think one thing many sales leaders, unfortunately, ignore is kind of the gold they already have, the customers they've already acquired, the ones who have already said, "Yes, I trust you. I'm willing to give you my money." you know i you are on this journey with me you are a key part to my success and they've already you know sort of created and established that relationship and all you're interested in is going and finding new customers that you've sort of moved on so a sales rep may be a hunter, right? I'm out finding new business, and then I pass it to a customer success team or a post-sales team or whatever it might be. And does the customer feel like you're still paying attention to the, to you? And Alicia, you said sort of B2B high-end. You can afford to do a high touch in that environment. If it's a transactional commodity, it's a different conversation. But you know, I, I just think that the existing base of customers is starving for you to pay more attention to them. and that's where you really can launch new products because they've already you know made a decision to work with you. They're more likely to try new products. They're more likely to forgive you if something goes wrong, they become more profitable over time, you know, and they are also your greatest selling engine, you know them advocating on your behalf when you're not in the room to other people. So I, I think that that is an area where selling into the base, upsell, cross-sell, whatever you want to call
0: it, Cannot be an afterthought. I think when you look at cost of acquisition of new, new logos, I mean we're, we're great believers in um, double double down in your existing customer base and 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 grow them. But I think that. Cycles tend to evolve round, and lots of clients go from let's go deep with existing customers. No, let's go after greenfield or new logos. What 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 are you seeing in, in the market generally? What's your your temperature gauge? Has that over the last year been a much greater fit, doubling down of existing customers and and really expanding the existing customers from a cross sell upsell, or has it been a greater focus on greenfield?
1: So when the pandemic first hit, you know, I was pounding the drum of go to the base, like go into the base. First of all, you don't want them leaving you. You know, what are the things you can do to make sure that they have what they need to continue? You know, what concessions are you going to put in place? Like, you know, we don't have to go through all that. Everybody knows sort of what everyone was doing, but it was definitely into the base. No question. Pre-pandemic, my answer would be why is it an or conversation? Like you you just framed it up like should it be into the base or should it be greenfield? It was a it was an or question. And I and I think it's an and play. This is where uh, looking at the resources you have in place, where they sit is not necessarily you know, determined by who is their leader and what BU they sit in, meaning marketing, sales, customer service, but rather what is the best way to serve the customer on an outside in view versus a inside out view, right? Well, this is my team. This is what they focus on. I don't know what you guys are doing. <laughs> right or okay so there is a ton of work that has to happen i mean really 30 years later 25 years later i'm still hearing the conversation about sales and marketing not working together like at some point we just have to get over that and until that is really resolved at scale the base is going to get ignored so so greenfield is is interesting to me but it is an end like fix what's happening in the existing organizational structure so that when you introduce net new logos to the mix, they get a better experience than your existing customers are having today.
0: I think part of the challenge, though, is that you know, Greenfield is is simple in the sense there's no historic account context. There's no, they haven't bought things from you. So it's actually easier in some ways or cleaner for marketing or, or sales or both of them combined to pursue pursue that space. When, when you think about enterprise selling, Tiffany, we're just really thinking about Salesforce's own go-to-market motion. you know, It's, it's complex. The, the buyer journey is convoluted. You're dealing with people as well as an organization and, and buying teams. What are you seeing in terms of trends and patterns when it comes to being successful in um, growing enterprise accounts?
1: Well, I think more than anything, what we've learned is it's been exciting for me to see sales organizations, and this is just not a Salesforce comment, but sales organizations start to get more comfortable with I don't have to physically be in front of someone in order to close deals. And I think many sellers sort of dug their heels in and said, nope, I have to get on a plane, a train, an automobile, physically go see customers in order for me to close large, complex, expensive projects, whatever that quote unquote project is. The pandemic forced us to, obviously we couldn't do that. And there was some research out by McKinsey that tracked it from April of 2021 to December, uh, I'm sorry, April of 2020 to December of 2021 and ask customers about the effectiveness about the sales models of companies in sort of establishing, you know, relationships and, you know, really showing up appropriately, if you will, during the sales cycle. And as you would guess, I hope, right, in April of 2020, people were like, oh, this is not going to be good. (laughs) Like this, this is not weird. This is not going to be good. But guess what happened? Over April of 2020 to December 2021, it actually flipped that customers like I like this digital first relationship with my AEs. It saves me time. You know, it's not a 90-minute meeting or a lunch or a dinner and it's not that they don't want to do that. It's that is every time I see a seller does it have to be a 60 or 90-minute meeting or can I do a quick Zoom you know, hangouts call for 10 or 15 minutes, get the value I need, get everybody together really quickly, touch base and move on. Getting everyone physically together was much more difficult. So don't hear me saying that it's digital only, but now it's potentially digital first. Then as selling organizations, you have to decide when is it appropriate for me to put the human in front of the customer, put them on a plane, put them on a train, put them in a car. You know what I mean? Like that to go through that effort versus having this hybrid of the two. And so that changed coverage models, capacity planning, what kind of, you know, sellers you need. Is it a sales development reps? Is it AEs, is it it account-based marketing activities? Like all of a sudden that just flattened out and you went, okay, now, now we, for the first time, I felt like we had an opportunity to reimagine what a sales organization looked like, what its metrics were, you know, what its remit was, the power of collaborating across teams, especially between the three I always talk about, sales service and marketing. Like, and and so it's been inspiring to see that happen. And so we went through, to the Salesforce point, we went through a very similar exercise. Like, you know, what is the territory planning? Do we have to have someone on planes all the time? Is it, you know, digital first? Is it, you know, async? Obviously we acquired Slack during the pandemic. So is it a Slack selling uh, motion now? So I think that there are lots of opportunities for sales organizations to get a little uncomfortable
0: and reimagine um, not only what's possible, but what's doable. Yeah. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there as you were talking about your customer engagement. And I've certainly seen it firsthand where sellers are able to also bring in executives into conversations much in a, in a much more straightforward way, as opposed to saying you've got to fly over to a CVC or you've got to go to an EBC for us to host this executive conversation. You're able to draw on a much more extended set of specialists as well.
1: Yeah. And I'd say this, look, sales and marketing, I know I know two things for sure. I mean, there's a couple things I know for sure, but there is definitely two things I know for sure. <laughs> One is... Sales reps do not wake up every day just dying to data enter. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I know for sure. I know that's a little off topic of where we are, but the second one will tie it back. (laughs) The second one is that customers do not wake up every day and go, today is an amazing day. I am moving from stage two to stage three in the sales process. They don't say that. So we have to always remember that this... Hold on a second. It has to go through five stages of the sales process and what's the funnel and you know, what are the steps and so that we can metric the heck out of justifying headcount, budget, <laughs> sphere of control is all internal, no bearing on the customer. So in this scenario of do I go digital or do I go face-to-face, my answer once again would start with ask your customers. And maybe not all customers are the same. So then you start looking at customer centricity models of going to your high value customers, you know, 20% of your customers driving 80% of your revenue kind of a conversation or analysis, and then applying a certain sales motion there versus to the middle, to the long tail, to the upsell, to the cross sell, like do it from a customer lens and then figure out on the other side, okay, <laughs> what's the metric what's the you know what's the organizational structure what's the support structure but let it start from the outside in versus trying to do it from the inside out and i think that that is just this consistent it's the way we've always done it so we're going to keep doing it that way versus really pushing yourself to go i think we have an opportunity to do things differently
0: Part of our research, we, we conduct a, an industry study every every quarter. We speak to the Global 2000 to figure out what, what's working when it comes to sales and marketing strategies, what's, what's actually getting to revenue. And something really interesting from our most recent data is that uh, we're seeing over half of enterprise businesses are, are more likely to consider new providers. Uh, have you seen any shifts um, in, in the enterprise landscape like that?
1: Yeah. So I'd say this, what a shame. So now why would customers be willing to look for new providers? Let's go back to 10 minutes ago. What were we talking about? Customer base, not paying attention to them, giving them a reason to want to look elsewhere, not you know, giving them and predicting and using machine learning and AI and insights um, to really deliver these compelling offers, new products. You know, white glove service with low touch human. Like, there's so much you could do. Yet, this status or the, these these stats that you just shared are really nothing new. I mean, they're always considering some new, you know, provider. Sometimes it's in a category that's brand new, but I'm guessing
0: to your point, it's a similar category. Yeah, I mean, the appetite to consider difference. You know, the appetite and openness yeah. to new, new supplies are overgoing. We'll, we'll stick with the status quo. So, in
1: the book, I have a chapter called Churn. And, and, you know, that's sort of losing in the recurring revenue business, right? Le- leaking things out the bottom of the bucket. You got to put more in the top. Okay. So I actually flipped it on its head and I said, why, why do win back campaigns? Why get a, you know, a, a, a red flag notice report that, this customer is potentially at risk because they're not logging in anymore or they're not returning calls, whatever you have as your early warning system. And instead, be offensive about it, you know, go on the offense instead of the defense and be like, hold on, if we really improve these key things, so we're surveying customers that are leaving figuring out why they're going and whether they're going to another provider or they're just going because maybe they're going out of business, right? It has to be they're going for some reason that you potentially could change. When you understand what those are, that means you have to ask the question, analyze the data, mm-hmm. look for the signals, change behavior. So if you do those things and you learn now you should be on you know, the offensive, I'm going to preemptively make sure they don't want to go consider someone else or leave. And that is a different mentality. So that goes back to this connection because that's customer service. That's marketing, right? Marketing, looking, why are people leaving, doing the analysis, coming back and going, here are the three reasons. And maybe six months later, those two of those three reasons have changed. Always be looking into the data so that you're ahead of in a predictive and insightful way what your customers are looking for. and I think if you if you listen to your research it is screaming for us to do a better job it with taking care of our existing customers
0: yeah no absolutely I mean a big 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 passionate believer of uh, look look after your base and I, I think great takeaway there of be be offensive about the churn I just want to share a little story with you as as you were talking thought it would be relevant 11 12 years ago um, when when I founded this business I formerly worked at Microsoft, had dinner with a guy I used to work with. And he told me about one of his sellers at the end of the meeting, leaving a stack of brochures with a CIO, a large global bank, almost as if to say you might find something interesting in here. And I know how much marketing effort goes into creating each one of those. And as a salesperson, you think this is all about chemistry and you're creating a value exchange, have a conversation. And that really, for me, was the the penny drop moment of nobody's thinking about the CIO or the customer and really thinking, well, your Microsoft, this is one of your big accounts, where can you add value? Do you think that there's an inherent challenge when it comes to salespeople thinking from the customer's perspective and also being able to develop things like value propositions and being able to connect that insight with, with their offering, uh, is there an inherent challenge with sales marketing service being divided out in, in, in the way that it's structured today?
1: So I'm going to put two sides to the same coin on that scenario you gave of the sales rep leaving the brochures behind. First, I would say that is a forced motion by marketing. Leave these behind. So sales goes to the CRM system and goes, check, I left them behind because that's what they have to do. No thought behind it, just leave it behind. Like the PowerPoint. Here's, we've spent six months on this, spent all this money. I want you to go through these 10 slides. Mm -hmm. The sales rep is like, you know, click, click, (laughs) click, click. And the customer's like, I I just don't care, right? I I just tossed all those leave behind materials that you left, glossy, you know, five page foldouts, went right in the trash. I was, you know, thinking about what I'm doing after work while you were going through the presentation. So the first thing I always say is if you are a marketer and you're listening to this podcast, go on a sales call virtually over the phone in person, get on a plane, train, automobile, whatever, especially to the top accounts. Let me be put a huge asterisk next to that statement. And by the way, uh, in my previous life, I did a lot of work with your, you know, former employer, and had these very conversations as they were turning the quarter on transforming the selling organization from on-prem to cloud. And and I would and I would tell you that when I would say that, the marketer would then go like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go. And I go, but hold on, I don't want you going as a marketer because then the customer's not going to throw it away in front of you and not pay attention in front of you because they know you're the one that did it. So, I want you to go as a new hire salesperson, shadowing this top performer. You're there to just listen and watch what happens. The customer's not looking at the slides, they put the high gloss things to the side. And so many a time when I was in a room of marketers, I would ask this question, how many of you gone on a sales call in the last quarter? Now this is pre-pandemic, obviously. And in a room of a hundred people, maybe three hands went up. Like shame on you as a marketer. It's like you're marketing all this stuff and how do you even know what they want? And so the salesperson is like,
0: ugh, marketing is giving me all this stuff to do that the customer doesn't even want. I mean, it's definitely a big learning point for any marketeer, conversations with customers.
1: Yeah. Yes. And that. First, second, listen in on customer service calls. Why are customers leaving? Like looking for those opportunities in the base, like get engaged, get more engaged. Now, I'm not blaming it on marketing because that's why I said it's two sides to the same coin. On the other side is the salesperson who, how dare they sort of drop a stack and go, you figure out what's interesting to you. You know, lazy salespeople, poor form today, customers just won't put up with it because there are. You know, you will get beat by sellers who use technology better and know what is important to that CIO. And if you get time with a CIO as a seller and you're selling technology, you're lucky. A lot of salespeople don't get time with the C-suite. So you better make it hyper valuable because what will happen is you'll never get that time again. And so, you know, that's where you really have to do that pre-work. And, uh, you know, systems can help you do it, Right. CRM systems can help you do it. Salesforce can help you do it, but you have to do some legwork yourself, right? Listen to the last earning calls, listen to a podcast they were on, find out what's, do not say what keeps you up at night. Like that's also (laughs) fairly lazy, but I wanted to show both sides to that, right? Because sometimes I'm, you know, it is the sales motion that's forced upon the seller that they have to check all these boxes because of productivity metrics and the sales motion and the selling, you know, strategies that they have. Like are they a challenger seller? Are they a solution seller? Are they whatever? And that doesn't necessarily always match what the customer wants. And that's why high performers, the question of is it, you know, born or learned, the born seller will be like, yeah, I'm not following that process. <laughs> I'm going to do what I know is right for the customer, and then I'll worry about it on the other side, and I'm I'm going to be successful doing it. But that's only a small percentage of sellers. So you know, if you're a salesperson, um, I don't want you to hear I'm blaming marketers. You have to step up your game as well and do the work. But if you're a marketer, this is where customers, to your point, they're going to be looking for other providers because what that interaction said to that CIO is, you don't care enough about me to do the work.
0: Yeah, no, you've, you hit a very good point, and then good, good to hear both sides of the coin. What, well, what's your perspective as as you look at sales enablement teams? When when you mentioned, can this actually be taught? Is it learnt, or is it in your gut intuition? Do, do you think sales enablement, as as we're seeing, it become a much bigger practice and a bit much bigger function in organisations? Is is that a way of bridging that sales and marketing divide?
1: Yeah, we see in our research, uh, sales enablement is increasing. So is sales ops. You know, sort of their role in every everything. But I also, you know, to to give the other side, it's also a very narrow and limited view of enablement and ops. Because when you say sales enablement, if you're not in sales, you feel like it's not it's not relevant to you, right? So then it became revenue ops, right? And 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 revenue enablement. And I'm like, okay, well, I appreciate the, you know, level up if you will from a from a naming convention to try to get rid of the stigma of it's only for sales. But I also think that's limiting because not everything people do is revenue generating. So I don't generate revenue, I don't carry a quota, once again, so I call it growth enablement, growth growth ops, because then you have customer service, marketing and sales, enablement so whoever was doing sales enablement as an example let's stay back at sales enablement whoever was doing sales enablement was probably only doing it for salespeople. well what about customer service and customer success aren't they upselling cross-selling saving customers yeah you know answering questions and so you've only enabled sellers where you're not enabling service and that's a miss because going back to what we've said a number of times here you're now not giving a great experience to your existing customers. So enablement is critical. It's not just for sales; it's for anybody who is customer facing, even your field service people. Like they're out in the field, they're they're fixing something, right? They could be could be break fix on a server or a storage device, whatever, right? And they roll the truck and they you know go to the site and the customer goes, God, these have been breaking down. You know we've had you here three times in the last month. What do you think we should do? Well, that field service guy or girl should be like, well, we should upgrade this whole server farm. And you know, let me have someone reach out to you. I'm going to take an inventory of what you have. I'm going to do some speed tests. I'm going to collect all this data and you know, puts it into the system. And then lo and behold, 12 hours later, our sales rep calls into the customer and goes, I understand you're interested in doing this. We did this whole analysis. Here's what we think you should do. Here's the benefit it's going to bring you. What a beautiful experience. How many companies do that?
0: Thinking of change and thinking of transformation, you, you touched on um, my Microsoft experience and you know, just speaking from your own experience. Could, could you talk me through a transformation that you have led, you know, from a sales, marketing, service perspective, into, in terms of making them either higher performing? Performing org- groups or teams, or, or in your um, startup experience, how have you helped transform revenue teams?
1: I'll start with myself, and then I will anonymize <laughs> <laughs> a, c- a customer from a from a Gartner experience because I don't have a sales remit here. I don't have a team mm-hmm. or. or you know, carry a quota. But in my own personal time as a sales leader, one of my favorite was, you know, I'd always been in sales and it was a startup, but it was very, very early at what we now call the internet, but it was called the World Wide Web back then. And we were the US's largest web hosting company. We were about four times the size of Rackspace at the time. We almost bought Rackspace. We were, I was, a Eloqua's beta client. I mean, I'm really going to date myself and Constant Contacts beta client. So I was doing cloud-based selling, chat-based selling, Uh, you know, uh, internet marketing, uh, putting small businesses on the web in 2000. I mean, so it's been, was 22 years ago. And I was asked to uh, take over marketing and then I was asked to take over customer service. Well, you know, I had no experience with customer service, sort of at all, right? I was a seller. So I was asked by my CEO at the time to go sit in the call center for a week, like just, you know, listen in and shadow for one week. I walked out of there and went, wow! I had no idea. <laughs> like I just, oh. I had no idea, right? I had no idea what they dealt with. I mm-hmm. had no idea, sort of the rudimentary basis of the tools. This was a long time ago. Also, I mean, Salesforce at the time was three years old, four years old. I mean, this is this was single user version of Act and Goldmine, Siebel. I mean, this was from a selling perspective. So you know, it, it changed my my view of this disconnection between sales, service, and marketing that I got all of us together. And the training that sales went through, customer service went through. The the programs uh, that marketing was launching to market, sales and customer service were trained on. Now, I did not need customer service agents to become high power salespeople. As a matter of fact, we didn't want that to happen, but we wanted them to be able to understand what in fact the customer was saying, and then what to do with it? Was it pass it to a salesperson? Was it they were able to just upsell or cross sell right then and there? Like you have email, do you need hosting? You need hosting? Okay, great. Do you need to you know help you design your website? It was a very easy motion once we taught them what to do, and that literally accelerated growth to a level I I was you know I was pleasantly surprised. My CEO, everybody was really happy, but it wasn't something like groundbreaking. It it was literally as simple as that. So that's why I tried to weave that into my answers to you, because I think that that is a a huge indication of the opportunity to maximize resources and efforts you already have in a more connected way, right? I mean, so it's not spending more marketing dollars. It's not hiring more salespeople, and it's definitely not cutting costs. It's maximizing and optimizing what you already have.
0: Joining the dots. I think sometimes the challenge is that that, that it's it's too simple so often gets overlooked a bit like common sense isn't isn't that common
1: yeah well I think some of it is also ownership mm. fiefdom silos yep. Yep. culture you know I think it's I think it's more internal inertia than than anything um uncertainty uh, uncomfortable unsure you know all of those words right okay On the flip side, I would say that, you know, I was working with a very large cloud provider who was entering a market that was kind of screaming up the hype cycle, if you will, and had no salespeople at the time. And it was a very technical buy. So the buyer was just using a credit card, but it could have been using a credit card online, never speaking to anybody for $1,000, $100,000, or a million dollars, or multi million. Very simple, seamless selling motion, if you will. And it wasn't even considered sales, right? Because there were no salespeople involved. It was really all being driven by automation. And then all of a sudden, you know, a very large competitor decided, well, that's kind of an interesting market. I want to get into that as well. And brought to bear this massive selling organization, right? Tens of thousands of salespeople and over a hundred thousand channel partners. So, you know, value-added resellers to bring to bear, to go up against a, uh, we don't have any salespeople. <laughs> so, you know, how, how are we going to compete? Well, let's start hiring some sales people, right? And what are we going to do to compete with such a massive sales engine? And so you You then have to go, well, I don't need to match that sales engine by size, but if I could outperform technically, if I could make it more easy and seamless, because I know this other company is not going to be able to do that because of the legacy sort of products and services and motions that they had, I can be much more agile and easy to do business with, if you will, and I can scale and I may never scale to that size but I'm going to grow significantly. And by the way, they got to a billion dollars with like, you know, no salespeople. So they had proven the model, but then in order to get to two, three, five, ten, fifteen, twenty billion, 10, 15, 20 billion, you needed to put some sort of, you know, people behind that from a sales perspective, especially if you wanted to get more strategic. In that entire conversation, I was working on both sides of that fence <laughs> on the one and the other. And so, you know, obviously with not sharing things from an NDA perspective, it was watching the, you know, and, and advising and looking at the angst on both sides was very different, yet trying to accomplish the same thing. So I go back to what I said, uh, you know, almost at the beginning of this is, the context of both of them was very different. The ultimate job to be done was the same. The path to get there was going to be complicated on one side, and by the way, it took well over a decade, and less complicated on the other, but the unknown and the sort of, well, why are we investing? We got this far without it. It was a different struggle. So, you know, I just I just try to share that it, you almost have to slow down to speed up and asking yourself really tough questions before you make big decisions, spending time with customers spending time with your front line, spending time with customers who have left you or chose not to come with you. it like, It is really about asking better questions, becoming a better listener, capturing that information, and being bold enough to make maybe the uncomfortable decision mm-hmm. and jump on your own little S curve. <laughs> because if you don't disrupt yourself, there's no way you can disrupt the business. Yeah.
0: I, I love that. I think that's a really, really key takeaway right there. And just fast forward for me, Tiffany, you, we've talked a lot about um, the, the state of um, the profession now and, and the journey that we've been on. Fast forward three three to five years from now, wh- what are your predictions for sales, service and marketing? Where, where will we be? Well, I'm crossing my fingers that the fiefdom finally on the silo
1: side has eased a bit, I think this digital first will help that happen because when it's humans, um, what ends up happening is we, we can control a lot of things, but we can't control the individual behavior, right? So you, that gets more difficult. So I think the connection on digital allows us to have maybe uh, an opportunity to be more, far more collaborative. That's one hope, you know, from a, from a, you know, aspirational standpoint of let's get that behind us for once and for all. The second thing I'd say is I think the sales organizations that are going to win and be more successful are those that are going to use technology better than those they compete against. This now is a technology game. Do you use AI, machine learning, you know, are you using a, a system like Salesforce as a very expensive Rolodex or are you using it as a partner for your salespeople to help them be more insightful and prepared so they don't show up and drop a stack of, you know, glossy five fold out documents in front of a CIO and say, go figure out what's important to you. That has to happen at the technology, unless you have one client, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always, you know, there's always extremes on either end. So I don't want, you know, people listening to go, well, that's not my case because of this. You know, you are outliers and most salespeople are managing 25, 50, hundred accounts. So, In those kinds of situations, you know, as humans, we can't remember everything that's happening. And would you rather get a list of 100 people to call every day, or would you rather get a list of the 10 that are more likely to buy? I would vote for the latter. I mean, that's just me. So using technology better. And the third thing I'd say is uh, really starting to look at what is the experience of those people that work for you if you're a manager the employee experience itself it is the missing link to delivering a better customer experience and ultimately delivering better growth i've been spending the last 2 years on doing a ton of research in that space and i think it's an area of which we have ignored and i'll give one stat to just to to bring or three stats to bring that home 1 66% of a seller's time spent on non-selling activities and that's remained fairly flat for about a decade. I mean, shame on us, especially with all the advancements in tech. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's really embarrassing. The next one is 52% of sellers will miss quota day one of any, you know, day, week, month, quarter, year. And that's remained fairly flat. It actually went down. Once again, Alicia, even with all the tech advancements, like again, shame on us. The the third one I'd say, which I think goes back to this people component that I just said as my sort of third thing to think about, is 54% of sellers would not spend $1 to have one hour of their manager's time. And that says everything about the lack of coaching, you know, the lack of career development, the lack of talking to me about things that are not in the CRM system. Like, why are you talking to me about deals and what's my pipeline look like and my forecast and what's happening in these accounts? Like, I've put it in the CRM system. I put it in Salesforce. Look at it. Instead of asking me questions you know the answer to, and instead help me to your point, Alicia, when you ask, like, how do I get better when I'm sitting in front of a CIO? How do I uncover what's important to them so I don't leave a stack? How do I, you know, coach me, make me better? But a lot of that happens because we promote high performing sellers, which does not mean they're gonna be a great manager. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking at the people side of it, burnout on the seller's side, you know, investing in career development. Um, giving them the opportunity to spend more time selling and obviously do what you hired them to do, which is close more business and and reach and achieve quota.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I think the employee experience, as you say, are heavily underlooked and uh, looking forward over over the next few years to see how, how much of a, a catalyst for change that that drives and becomes. And Tiffany, finally, I just want to close on, um, you, you've been frontline in um, sales roles. You, you've had various leadership roles around marketing and innovation. What, what's your single b- biggest takeaway? What would you say your, your biggest um, piece of advice would be to someone perhaps starting out now and, and, and looking, looking forward?
1: If you are early in your selling career, uh, I'd say become a student of your profession. Like you have to immerse yourself in what it is that you do. How do you tell better stories? Take a class, watch a TED talk, read a book, however you consume and learn, you know, take a comedy class, you know, on on how to go and do a comedy show. And not that you ever do that, but it's more about getting uncomfortable and trying things or, you know, take a singing class <laughs> or anything that sort of makes you more comfortable being in front of people in that way, you know, thinking on your feet. If you want to be a better, you know, writer to send more compelling emails or whatever it is, like, you know, personally invest in yourself. If you don't invest in yourself, nobody else will. So, you know, be a student just personally, but then in whatever industry sector vertical region you're in, Know as much as you can, which means you have to consume content and then be able to, you know, tell that story. Storytelling is a huge part. Influence is a huge part. Uh, relationship building is a huge part. So, getting better at that will serve you well. So, being a student of your profession is sort of one thing. The second, I'd say, trust the process. Like, there is no way to speed up this learning. You know, you're not going to get good at it in a week, in a month, even in a year. You know, I've been in this 25 years. Every day, I learned something new the slow down to speed up, asking better questions. Like those things have come to me in the last decade. You know, they didn't come to me when I was actually carrying a quota. So, I mean, I think that it is um, always staying curious, being open to learn new things, making small changes every day over the course of your career will have huge impact to where you are today versus
0: where you end up in the end. Fantastic. I love that. Be, be a student, tell better stories. Well, I, I know you're traveling to London over the weekend to, to do exactly that at um, a, a large summit. So wishing you happy travels and uh, really appreciate, Tiffany, you coming on and, and sharing your insights over the last 25 years and uh, talking a, a little bit more about your book. All right. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, Tiffany. This podcast is brought to you by Momentum, the B2B growth consultancy and pioneers of account-based marketing. You can learn more at wearemomentum.com.